This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. This week, we talk about the different visualization dashboards that states are using to talk about COVID-19. This week, we're going to talk about dashboards, specifically COVID-19 dashboards. So, Michael, what's a dashboard and what's its purpose? So a dashboard is a collection of different charts and graphs all put together. Normally, it's designed to support some kind of decision-making process. So in the context of COVID, what kinds of information have we seen on dashboards? Well, I think the information is a little bit more straightforward. We've seen case counts, hospitalizations, and the like. I think the decision that the dashboard is supposed to you know, support, I feel like that's a little bit more ambiguous when we start looking at COVID dashboards around the world. Plenty of people up to now have seen some kind of COVID dashboard. If you Google COVID-19 cases in your state, if you Google global COVID-19 cases, Google will make a dashboard for you in your browser. If you go to your State Department of Health, they'll have a browser. Universities have put up their own browsers and dashboards. There's a lot of them out there. Seems like there's a new dashboard every day put together by some organization that repurposes these numbers. And of course, they all agree, right? Yeah, we're swimming in charts about COVID-19 to the point where I feel like if all of us close our eyes right now, we can see the spidery, jagged lines of states climbing up or climbing down. It's been all over the New York Times, Washington Post, every major publication, their data visualization team is making these kinds of things as well. Are we talking about these because these are just plain misinformation or tools of misinformation? Or why would we talk about these in a misinformation podcast? Talking about these kinds of charts and graphs, you know, we're not looking at State's Department of Health being malicious actors or trying to spread misinformation. I think when we take a look at some of these dashboards, we can just see how complicated it can be to communicate this information to people and to do a good job. And I think anytime there's an inefficiency or a hiccup in the system, or when you're putting a chart together, then that's an opportunity for misinformation. And I would add that these are also very difficult to interpret because we're using a lot of technical terms in these dashboards and vernacular around, you know, what is a case count, what is a, are not, and these get graphed and these are not common statistics that we use in our everyday lives. So we're having to learn a lot of medical terminology to interpret many of these dashboards. So what does it mean for a positive case? What's a serology test versus a PCR test? And these dashboards kind of lay out these numbers, but we don't necessarily always understand the context or how long it takes for a number to appear in the graph or what kind of processing a number might take before we have a test. And then how does that eventually appear on a dashboard? Yeah. And like back to the idea of how can a dashboard be misinforming? Well, all it takes is to not really explain what a case is and all of a sudden that can be misinforming or it can be an opportunity for someone else to misinform. So even at the press conference yesterday that the governor put on, somebody asked, are you sure you're not double counting cases? Because someone might test positive for COVID-19 on one week and then the next week you test them again. Are you sure you're not double counting them and inflating the cases? And you know we've talked before about all the different narratives that are kind of swimming around to try to make COVID-19 seem like a hoax or a false flag, or some other kind of nefarious thing. And one of the keys to doing that is to inflate the caseload. So poorly described charts can also contribute to that as well. And so I think these kind of sit at the intersection of a lot of different ways of misunderstanding. And just to be clear, yesterday you're talking about the June 25th press conference that the Arizona State Governor Doug Ducey had to discuss issues around COVID, correct? 
Yeah, exactly. It's June 26th today. Yesterday was, was June 25th. Helpful clarification. A consistent backdrop for the governor of our state during these briefings has been bar graphs. And so the idea that the governor of the state is going to be giving a briefing on a semi-regular basis and the backdrop is consistently bar graphs just kind of speaks to how important data and data visualization is in our moment. I think it's important to address why data visualization can sometimes be a place where we stumble or become misinformed because we're, we're living right now in a moment where these data visualizations, we're putting a lot of stock in them. And they become tools to advocate for policy. And this is not nefarious. It might be that the policy you're advocating for is opening up a state. So you want to ensure that the visualizations support that. And you want to use the visualizations as a tool to support that. If you believe that the state should lock down, then you're going to use visualizations as a tool in support of that policy. Yeah, I mean, they're communication devices. Yeah, that, you know, I, I think that nothing we're going to talk about today falls under the header of purposefully malicious misinformation campaign. We're going to go through a number of things that almost seem like a blooper reel of ways that we can become misinformed using charts and graphs, which is ironic because normally we think about charts and graphs as something that's going to clarify something for us or help us. But there can be a number of ways where that's just, I think that's not helpful. So let's get into some things that we've observed and maybe even talk about some specific charts and graphs. Obviously, we can't show these charts and graphs in a conversation, but I think we can do our very best to describe them and, and paint a picture in everyone's mind. So I, we've worked out a bit of a framework here to discuss this as to why some of these dashboards might be confusing or easy to misinterpret. So one aspect of the dashboards is that they have a long reporting tail in that you take a test, then that test gets sent to a lab, you know, a lab interprets that test, and then eventually all that takes this like long winding road to end up on the dashboard and be interpreted. And so there's a delay in reporting. So whenever someone might die of uh, a COVID or someone has a positive test, it doesn't immediately pop up on that dashboard 30 seconds later. It might take a couple of days or even a week for that to appear on the dashboard. And why might that be kind of confusing? So what's one of the charts that we've seen tons and tons of times, especially for case rate? We see two different kinds. One is the line graph, which is just going to show cases over time. And that's where I think a lot of times people are talking about the curve. But the other one we see is actually just counts of cases over time as skinny little bars that are all racked up from March all the way to the present moment. And that looks a lot like, I don't know, Fitbit telling you about how many steps you took in a day or how many hours of sleep that you got. I think we run into a lot of trouble when some of these tools look very similar to some of the apps that we use every day. If it looks like a dashboard that gives us instant up-to-date information, it's not unreasonable to expect that they look similar. How come this coronavirus information isn't instant and up-to-date? It's not like everybody understands how long coronavirus testing takes. We wouldn't assume that automatically. To me, this is confusing because our expectation is that it's instantaneous. Most of the time when we interact with things that look like this, the latency period between event and reporting is a lot faster. Like with our Fitbit or our, our Apple Watch or whatever device or, you know, in my case, my, my ancient Pebble that my phone displays. You have a Pebble? Yes, I have a Pebble. Does that even give you results or do you have to like... Do you start a diesel generator and then that creates a dashboard for you? Is that... My, my Pebble is still happily going strong and impressively so. But that creates a dashboard for you on your activity as well? So Pebble is my watch. For, for people tuning in who aren't dialed into nerd humor about wearables. Right. So Pebble, the app still runs on... My iPhone, yes. Okay, um, got it. But despite the age of my watch, 
the dashboard gets updated in real time. So every time I open the dashboard or I look at the health statistics on my my phone, it immediately grabs the data from my watch. That shows up in some graphs that look very similar to all these dashboard graphs that I'm seeing on Arizona or Georgia or Florida's website. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that dashboards, so far when we've seen them, we expect them to be connected to some kind of real-time service. Coronavirus testing is not a real-time service. Definitely not. And the confusing part too is many states have like, for example, I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about our home dashboard from the state of Arizona, but many dashboards have similar problems. So we're not just picking on Arizona for the fun of it, but they have a summary page that says 3000 tests came back positive today. But then you go to the daily graph, this bar chart that you were discussing before. And then I see the number of cases today are not 3000. The number of cases today are 45. What the heck? Yeah, it looks like we're doing great. It looks like there's a sudden drop in cases, but back to what we were saying, if the reporting is delayed or is updating, we're not looking at a decrease in the curve. We're just looking at data that's pending. So this big mismatch in this delay is that, well, let's say, say for example, today on the 26th, the 3,428 cases came back positive for COVID. But if we go to the cases confirmed by day graph, we see that on June, today, June 26th, only 45 cases have been reported. So what that means is those other 3,400 cases have been attributed to previous days. So it's not just 3,000 today, it gets attributed back to the day that the test took place, but it might take from a day to a week for those numbers to return. So there's this confusing mismatch. We keep reporting 3,000 positive cases today, and that could have been a test from a week ago. Right. And so all of these bars are up for revision. They could get taller as the data comes in. So that I don't think we're used to that. I mean, can you think of another chart, bar chart that someone is going to interact with in their everyday life where we could say, okay, you're looking at it now, but two days from now, these values might be completely different. That's a, that is a very different world. Well, and especially something that we're having such an intense political and you know, life-changing discussion around a, a virus and the previous seven days are basically always in constant flux. Yeah. And even any kind of, uh, you know, projected epidemiological curves that we see in some of these charts and graphs, it's also tough to get your head around the fact that the projection will change. And so it is possible for one of these models to say, hey, here's what our case rate is predicted to be in a week, and then have that be revised once we learn something new. So the fact that all of this, that both the kind of reported past and the predicted future are under revision based on new information that we get, Again, that's just not something we deal with every time we open up our iPhone. Part of this is that we have to focus on certain parts of the data and we have to understand in interpreting each of these graphs that these number of days, we are constantly in flux. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I think that it looks so much like the way that other kinds of applications visualize data, but the data underneath it is so very different. And so I think one of the ways that some of these dashboards can misinform, not intentionally, but one of the ways that they can do it is just being visually ambiguous with other kinds of data-driven services that don't behave the same way. And there's no visual indicator in the graph of, side note, these four days worth of bars, these may change. We're still getting data in. So don't interpret these days. This graph just shows up and it's like 45 cases today. This is great. We're done. Yeah, it feels like that could be printed in 45-point font across the top of the web page because it might be the most important piece of information to offer up to anybody looking at the website. 
and this is not explained by the media either. So the media, you know, today in the news, they reported these, you know, 3,400 plus cases in Arizona. So, but that's not an accurate representation of actually today. Those are just the tests, the tests that came back today or the deaths that were processed today. That didn't mean those folks uh, passed away today or that the, they were positive today. That just is a really confusing kind of number that's not necessarily as helpful as we think it might be. Yeah, yeah, totally. Even, uh, you know, there have been state papers in Arizona who have published guides to understanding the dashboard. And the dashboard itself has undergone several revisions. And so these dashboards are just kind of emerging as a response. And nobody has it all figured out yet. So let's move on to the, one of the next issues. Another issue might be trying to understand the spread sort of statewide or versus local. So how are these dashboards confusing in the ways that we might try to figure out maybe what does COVID look like in our neighborhood versus what does COVID look like in the entire state? Yeah, so I feel like this has been a really interesting debate among data visualization people throughout the COVID pandemic, which is what is the best kind of map to use to represent the outbreak and epidemic over space. So the New York Times had a really kind of popular and still continue to be popular visualization, which looks like the United States. Sean, I'm sure you've seen this one, right? It looks like a map of the United States with red bubbles of various size superimposed over every city's location. And so it basically looks like a whole bunch of red bubbles superimposed on a map. And, you know, at the early point in the pandemic, New York just had so many cases. The, the bubble for New York was so big, you couldn't even figure out what the case rate was in Delaware or Philadelphia. Are you familiar with that kind of map? Basically, these circles that you're discussing are then sized. They're sort of the center of the circle is attached to a location. And then yeah, the exactly. size of the circle represents the number of cases in a specific area. So, you know, in January, there would be very tiny, very small circles versus now the whole country's covered in red circles. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that kind of graphic is called a graduated symbol plot. A lot of folks kind of in the visualization space, Elijah Meeks being one of them. Elijah Meeks is, uh, works for Apple. I think he just quit. He was a kind of visualization lead at Apple, quit Apple, has his own startup right now. But one of the founders of the Data Visualization Society came out really hard against the idea of graduated symbol plots. You know, the case being against graduated symbol plots is they obscure more data than they show. Because after these, these data get to a certain value, it just looks like a big mess. Nevertheless, we see plenty of these graduated symbol plots. And it makes it very difficult to actually compare what's going on across different areas, right? Anytime we visualize something, we want to be able to make a comparison. And so anytime we have something that doesn't let us make a comparison or interferes with that, we should really question, right? So that's an issue. But then these choropleth maps... And these are, you know, if we've seen a county by county map or a state by state map or a zip code by zip code map, and certain zones are shaded in darker than others, that's a choropleth map. And those have all kinds of problems with them as well. So what does the shading represent? So a lot of times we'll put the data into buckets and then uh, scale the color according to where the data is. And what all that means is we might have 1 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, right? If our maximum value is 40, and then we'll just shade in the map according to where the kind of counts fall according to certain locations, right? So if we, we can even call up the Arizona Department of Health Services map right now by zip code map, 
where we can see what the case rates are by zip code or case totals, I'm sorry, per zip code. You know, some of them are shaded in darker because there's more cases and some of them are shaded in lighter because of other cases. So we might imagine a sort of gradient from you know, zero cases being a, a white to, in this case, over 250 cases, which is a very small number. It might be a very dark red. And so then you can understand that the area of dark red has more cases. But the problem that we run into is, one, how these boxes are created, which you're talking about. So we have buckets. When your example of, you know, zero to 10, 10 to 20, those are even buckets. But what are the, the buckets in the Arizona dashboard here? Uh, yeah, I mean, core plots necessarily draw distinctions between the grades or the buckets of data, right? So what's a pale color versus a slightly darker color versus the darkest color, right? We're making distinctions among those. And normally, it would be great to have a statistical way to draw those distinctions or even a theoretical or some justification for why these things exist, right? Any, how about any justification? Any justification is better than none at all. What we have in the state of Arizona site is actually none at all. But the other limitation that we see with the Coropleth is that it actually draws hard lines between things that are relatively arbitrary, like zip code and county and even state. When you're looking at a viral pandemic, that thing isn't going to live by the same boundaries as other kinds of data that we might plot. If we're looking at, say, schools or income, a lot of those things are associated with zip code. But how a virus spreads, that's a vast and sprawling network that's not going to be contained by the boundary boxes of zip codes or counties or anything like that. So if we turn our eyes to the Arizona COVID-19 Coropleth map, we see a whole lot of complicated stuff that isn't really clarifying. Yeah, when looking at this map, I just see a lot of dark red. And so now I want to close the window because that just that looks problematic. But we see that the buckets that they put in, they start at zero and they max out at 250, which is a problem because, for example, some of the like Maricopa County has thousands and thousands of cases. So above 250, basically the large portion of Maricopa County they're in the 600s, 800s, above, basically all these zip codes are above 250. So I can't really distinguish between these zip codes as to whether or not it's more prevalent or less prevalent. So a zip code that has 400 cases versus a zip code that has 800 cases looks exactly the same. It's presented visually the same in this map when that's not necessarily the same if you look at the underlying numbers. Yeah, I see where you're going with the buckets for the Coropleth, right? So the way we're shading, we can read it out, right? The lowest value is zero. Zero cases is one color. One to five cases is level one. Six to 10 cases is level two. 11 to 100 cases is level three. 100 to 250 cases is level four. And then the greatest possible value is greater than 250. And what I think has happened here, this is conjecture, but I imagine that this map worked a whole lot better even three weeks ago than it did now. Why is that? Because, because now so many different zip codes have over, over 250 cases that the way that they've separated out the data for shading by color no longer can keep up, right? We can't compare anymore because almost every single zip code is above 250 cases. And so back to what we were saying before, maps should allow us to be able to make comparisons across different places, not make all places look the same. And what we have with this Coropleth is making all these places look the same. So if I were to just glance at this map and I didn't you know, spend 25 minutes staring at it, 
then I would think that Northern Scottsdale, which is a much more spread out area, a much more affluent area, would have the exact same set uh, number of cases or the same class of cases as someplace in Central Phoenix, which looks very different demographically and income wise and in terms of what it's going with the virus, right? So if we have something that's 1200 cases, right, in, in a Phoenix zip code, <laughs> compared against a North Scottsdale zip code that's 278 cases, this map is representing them as the exact same color. And so we talk about, you know, how can we be misinformed by something? I don't think this is intentional, but this is a misleading visualization, right? This is causing a kind of misinformation and equivalency where no equivalency exists. He said more than likely, this graph was actually very helpful in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic as it spread throughout Arizona. And now... It, you know, these buckets need to be updated to take into account the scale change in the number of cases. This is chilling to look at, honestly, to see that greater than 250 at some point was a really good idea, right? Dated June 19th, right? There's actually a little note with an update that total case counts using the original class breaks had to be updated. I would, I would bet dollars to donuts that they're going to update this again sometime soon to reflect this, right? We know that this isn't an intentionally misleading artifact, but again... Here we are with something that's actually pretty misleading as it stands right now. So most likely right after this podcast release, then we'll see this graph get updated. Yes. And then we won't be allowed to podcast anymore because of an executive order from the governor. Well, if that comes with some extra funding, maybe that's okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can go with that. So let's talk about the different types of graphs that are used and why some of these graphs might be confusing or not. So if we look, for example, at in the state of Arizona on their dashboard, hospital and bed usage availability. So this is a, a stacked bar chart where the entire bar represents 100%, and then the bar is sliced into various colors representing different categories. So in the case of hospital and bed usage, we have a sort of red bar that says these are intensive care unit beds in use. And then we have a gray bar above that. And that's basically open capacity. So are stack bar charts confusing at all? I mean, this one I want to give a pass to because there's only two categories. So it seems okay. Although you mentioned, you know, some of the most common charts that we see, I feel like if we were to create a COVID-19 data dashboard greatest hits, then the stacked bar chart would be one of them. And for people who aren't familiar with stacked bar charts, I'm sure you've seen something similar where you have one type of bar, one color of bar, and then another kind of bar, which is a different color stacked on top of it. And so actually the governor used a slightly different version of the chart that you're talking about, Sean, in one of his briefings, I want to say last week, where you did have stacked bars representing breakdowns of, of hospital bed usage. And these are a big problem for me. This one's fine because we only have two different kinds of bars. But as soon as we get more than one kind of bar stacked on top of one another, it's really difficult to compare values again, because what's the easiest thing to compare? The height of two things that are starting from the same place. Once you start mixing that up across you know, something like 90 different instances, it becomes tremendously difficult to figure out what's going on. And if this is the bar chart, I think I know which one you're thinking of, but it was actually the ICU bed bar chart. But they yes, that one. A third color at the bottom that said of the ICU in use, what percentage of that is due to COVID cases versus non-COVID cases. So then we had sort of three bars, which I think was like a gray, a blue, and a yellow. 
Yeah, exactly. And again, very difficult to compare. And so once it becomes difficult to compare, then there's all kinds of opportunities to be misinformed, right? There's plenty of opportunities there to think, oh, I don't think the hospital bed situation is as bad as maybe some people are saying. And honestly, I think some of this misinformation or the misinforming effect that we're talking about today is in dialogue with some of the stuff that we've talked about before, that if someone is confused, they may look for other explanations, or they may you know, seek out additional explanations or be vulnerable to additional explanations. And as we know, right, there's so much misinformation out there right now around COVID-19 that any kind of gaps in the data or the explanation are just going to be opportunities for some of this misinformation to have some kind of explanatory value. Misinformation loves a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if I'm looking at this and it's not explained to me what the hospital bed capacity is situation really is like, back to before we were talking about and people can't necessarily agree on what a bed should count as when you're talking about hospital capacity, right? There's that figure isn't really well documented right now. And so in the absence of a good explanation of what counts as an ICU bed or what counts as an occupied bed or what counts as a surge bed, then a piece of misinformation can do a really nice job of explaining that, which is they're trying to inflate the number of full beds to make this seem like it's worse than it is because this is just a false flag because Q told me yesterday that, you know, so these explanations work out really nicely if there's in the absence of a, of a much better, much simpler explanation. Do we want to explain who Q is? Q refers to the QAnon conspiracy theory. And so in kind of using that free and direct discourse to characterize a conspiracy theory, that's what I'm referring to is that the QAnon conspiracy theory, which is probably worth its own, its own conversation, but there's frequent updates distributed online and through social media, supposedly from a, a team of military officials embedded somewhere in the United States government who kind of pass information on to followers. But a lot of conspiracy theories about the coronavirus are coming from the QAnon conspiracy theory circles. And so again, a vacuum in the explanation about the data or confusion created by unclear visualizations isn't in itself misinforming, but creates really nice opportunities for conspiracy theories like QAnon or some of the stuff that we saw or that we discussed kind of glancingly about the pandemic propaganda video, right? They gain more explanatory value when there's more ambiguity and confusion. There's more um, space for them to hook into, so to speak. So if we go back to this graph of hospital bed and, and usage availability, then we see no definition of what it means for an available bed versus an unavailable bed versus an inpatient bed, which some folks might say, well, it's really obvious. We all know what a hospital bed is. We all know what an ICU bed is, what an ER bed is. Not really. So if a bed was in use for part of a day, does that count? If a bed was in use for an hour, does that count? If someone's pending a COVID test, does that count? So that's why these definitions are really important for it to be clear in the data so we understand and we all agree that this means the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise, people are going to start asking those questions that you just asked as evidence for there being something wrong happening. And even uh, what people are asking or how people are criticizing this kind of reporting, that's where they go first. The, the response is, they didn't clarify this or they didn't specify this. So this seems less reliable to me because I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about. So they, they must be hiding something from me. They must be hiding something. 
Right. And they're, they're not hiding something. It's just charting really well is, is, can be difficult. But yeah, these charts that we're looking at here, just because we threw a bar graph up online and it looks really nice, doesn't mean that we've achieved what we really want to do, which is try to achieve clarity and some kind of common ground about where we're at. These kinds of follow-up questions that you asked are the exact kind of stuff that can create that kind of confusion that can be destructive. I imagine that AZDHS, the Department of Health Services, has a, de- a very strict definition that hospitals use to report. They're just not communicating this to the public. What their a lot of these dashboards do, and this is not picking on Arizona, is they just basically give you a title and then they drop a graph in and then they walk away. And then that yeah. graph gets updated every day. And so now we look at this. And that, that means that, you know, two things. One, there's no real explanation and contextualization. So all data emerges from a context. So there's no explanation of the context that this data emerges. So now, you know, we're already creating a story about the context that this data emerges and that may or may not be correct. Yeah, and, and that's an invitation for all kinds of other explanations. Yes, I can't download this data. I can, you know, mouse over the graph and I, it'll give me the different numbers, but I can't download this data as a table to then explore it further myself unless I want to spend all the day hand coding this data or find someone who graciously did this for me. So in some ways we're being transparent with the graph, but in other ways we're a little less transparent because you can't download the data to then look at it in different ways. Yeah. And I keep coming back to this, that what decision are we supporting by creating a dashboard like this? A lot of times dashboards are instruments that are designed for very specific purposes. The idea of a generally informative dashboard is a thing, but Generally, we want to think about at least some of the possible decisions that someone might want to make. So if we're talking about a COVID-19 dashboard, there's a small number of decisions that a lot of people are weighing right now. How much should I go out? You know, should I go to X number of businesses or what kinds of businesses? Should I wear a mask? All of these decisions are relatively straightforward if we're all on the same page about the CDC right now. Where these dashboards can become more useful is when states start to have very different kinds of situations. There are states where the the curve is kind of declining right now. So maybe people are making slightly different decisions. But on plenty of these dashboards in states that have a lot of coronavirus and states that don't have a lot of coronavirus right now, relatively speaking, there's still not an explicit connection to behavior, which I find very unusual in looking at a dashboard and not having it linked to any kind of decision-making that somebody's going to make, right? We're observing the data, but that data is kind of in a vacuum. And so again, I, I just think it kind of sets it up there for ridicule or criticism rather than helping connect it to some kind of evidence-based practice. And if we think about sort of the genesis of many dashboards, we can think of these as tools to communicate to like an executive team, for example, the status of a company. So if right. you produce widgets, you have dashboards with various you know, widget production information and sales information. So you can get this overview. So then you can make your next decision. Or with this dashboard, does the number of hospital beds that are available versus not available help me understand whether I should go to the grocery store today? Or does this just feed my anxiety? I don't really understand what's going on. And I just see these red bars growing and growing, but I don't really know what that means. Yeah. I mean, I think there should be some kind of subtext for charts at all times. And if not, there should be some kind of lengthy explanation about why we're all here, so to speak. So there should be a reason and a decision associated with this stuff. And, you know, the other point you bring up is it's also interesting that not only are dashboards designed oftentimes to help support complex decisions with lots of interdependent factors so that people who are making decisions can just 
you know, more rapidly or in a more informed way make them. They, these are also, right, we can't leave behind this idea about how visually ambiguous these things are with much more mundane things. If we didn't have coronavirus labeled on any of these charts and graphs, it could just as easily look like sales figures from an online retail company. You know, we, we could just be looking at Q2 sales in the state of Arizona by day. But it looks exactly the same as coronavirus cases. That's not to say that every chart has to look exactly different, right? Depending on what it's doing, that's, that's impossible. But it does contribute to some of our expectations, right? It creates that vacuum so that it, without some kind of further explanation about why we're paying attention to this stuff, then we just default back to our normal expectations about looking at these things, which is, oh, I'm just reporting it and I want to know it. But we have to know what kind of decision we want to be making. And if these were sales figures, we'd be having a rocking quarter. We'd be having a great quarter. That's, that's really grim. But it's true. I'm also noticing as we go through newspapers, state's departments of health from all over the place, that a lot of these charts and graphs are starting to look the same. Have you noticed that too? Yes, I've noticed that similar, sometimes the colors are different. And then the design of the graphs, the way information is presented, how the dashboards load, it just kind of looks like they've all purchased the same product. And that's what they're using to display their data. Actually, if we go through and look at even just the domain names for some of these, we can see that they actually they have purchased the same product. I think something like 15 states are using an Esri product uh, to visualize their geospatial trends. Esri is a geospatial software company. Tableau is another product, it looks like, that some of these people are using. Tableau, again, is a data dashboarding and visualization uh, software product. Microsoft Power BI, which is a a business analytics uh, software tool. So I think to some extent that people did buy the same product for this purpose that might account for some of this sameness that we're observing. I mean, also these tools have a default set of graphs that they come with that you got to click your data, click the graph type, press a button, and then presto, you have a dashboard. So creating a new type of graph that's not in the tool, that's not sales quarter three graph, is very difficult, time-consuming, and expensive. Yeah, totally. And you know, here we are in a situation where science and information communication are now being marshaled as a form of disaster relief. Statistics, modeling, medicine clinical care. These are all now bundled together. We normally don't think about uh, scientists and and biostatisticians as people who are kind of responding directly to an urgent kind of emergency. It's normally not that situation, right? But here we are. We have people who are reporting out data and statistics. It's an emergency. Getting the information out is important, but it's not like any of these state institutions are so generously funded that they just have a crack team of data visualization and statistics folks working around the clock to make sure we have the best and most nuanced uh, products available. That's just not happening. And we also have to understand, you know, these tools were spun up in many ways, sort of almost overnight. Sometimes and being revised, right? And constantly being revised. But also, there are hundreds of thousands of visitors to each of these dashboards, if not more, every single day. The infrastructure, so the servers and internet connections and tools that sit behind that, these aren't trivial. And you know, this is not an area of expertise of you know, the Arizona Department of Health or any Department of Health. They don't run servers. That's not their job. So hooking into these tools in many ways is ingenious, but then leads to a lot of, well, these tools were designed to forecast sales or production. These weren't designed to show epidemiological graphs or the spread of a virus. Right. So the more custom it is, the more it's going to cost you. 
or we could use an off-the-shelf product and put it on Amazon Web Services. But if we do something that isn't bespoke, then we get all the kinds of problems that we're talking about right now, which is the charts raise a lot of questions and then also occlude some of the data, raising more questions. So we walk away with that vacuum you talked about, and that's an invitation to explain what we see or to criticize what we see. And right now, the conspiracy theory thinking, the misinformation that's kicking around, this is the stuff that's oftentimes flying in to serve as an explanation for what's going on or as really fuel for the criticism of of what we see. I mean, we've talked about this, about these dashboards, and I think there have been some, some kind of interesting points raised about what goes into making them and how reliable they are and what the consequences are for ambiguity and occlusion of data. But how many people do you think actually use these dashboards and take them seriously? I have some anecdotal evidence, I guess I would say. So my non-academic friends and family are either direct users of these dashboards because they have conversations with me about these every day or indirect users of these dashboards because journalists are using this to report information or they're gathering data from this and then re-visualizing it like in the case of the New York Times. So I think these dashboards are actually heavily used because we're all trying to figure out what the heck is going on with this pandemic. Yeah. And you mentioned the site traffic looks like it's pretty heavy. I think I did a bad job of, of raising the point of maybe some people don't consult these dashboards at all because the trust level is so low or they feel like it's all a hoax anyways. I imagine some of those folks are actually doing the opposite. We see in elections and other places where these graphs are produced and then the sort of holes in the graphs are then used as entry points to say, this actually isn't a problem. Or see, we can't trust this data. Let me highlight this one issue in this graph that they may have been corrected. So we go back to, for example, there's a great example with the Georgia Department of Public Health where they, I'll say, accidentally produced a graph. Oh yeah, early May... Georgia Department of Health Services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So traditionally, we would do like a time series where we we have June the 1st, then June the 2nd, then June the 3rd, and then we display that data in a... June the 4th, also known as the day that comes after June the 3rd. Correct. And what happened is the Georgia Department of Public Health produced a graph that was instead of ordered by day, it was ordered by number of cases. So it looked like the days were out of order to make it look like the graph was going down at a downward slope. So it looked like cases were decreasing. And journalists picked up on this. There was a firestorm. The Georgia Department of Public Health said, we're sorry for the mistake. We removed this from our website, from our social media. We fixed that graph. We apologize. But cases like that are used by all sides of the political spectrum to sort of make their point, whether I would argue their point's valid or invalid. That's a different conversation. Right, it can um, appear nefarious, but just clicking sort by value, there's a a very kind of innocuous explanation there. I would say- And I should get my facts right, right? I I kept calling it Department of Health Services for Georgia, but that's Arizona. Not, it's it's the DPH for Georgia, Department Department of Public Health? Okay, Yes. yeah, just making sure I don't project any misinformation. Not intentionally, right? Not intentionally anyway. Uh, Long story short here is that even those that don't believe that the pandemic is an issue, they're still either primary or secondary consumers of this information because they use this as part of their argument. I see what you're saying. So the best worst case scenario is that these charts are confusing, cover up data, encourage equivalencies where they don't exist, 
But the worst, worst case scenario is that these points of weakness or ambiguity can be leveraged by people who are expressly interested or invested in misinforming information. So the site might say, well, we're still processing data. So there's a backlog. And then someone says, well, of course, it takes a long time for you to cook the data. So that's why you can't put it up immediately. Right. The deep state is very busy right now. And so it needs a little bit of time to get the the figures up on the website. All right. So thinking about wrapping up, what use is the data dashboard on COVID-19 right now? What good is it if we've identified a number of different potential tricky parts? What good can we see in these things? Well, I see them primarily as a transparency tool. So this is a way for public health services and the government to say, now you're working with a lot of the data that we're working with. And you can see this data. We can explain our policies to you in the context of this data. We might disagree, but at least we're working from the same data. Yeah, this feels like almost like the accountability side of things is, is just as important as the communication side of things. That it's kind of confusing about what exactly or why we're communicating this information in terms of people's individual decisions. If just yesterday we're mandating wearing masks, what other decisions were people supposed to be making? But the other part of this seems to be holding people accountable and making sure there's some modicum of transparency. But this also then brings all the complications with it of this is actually highly technical data. You might have one number of cases per day, but that one number is, has a really complex context from which it emerges. A whole testing environment, a whole set of test criteria, reporting criteria, a delay criteria. So there's a latency. So that one number wraps up all of that inside of it. So it's not just this is transparent. It's also this data is actually really complex. And so these dashboards don't do a lot to honor that complexity, which leads to a lot of confusion. Mm. So if I'm just going to look at this now, I feel like maybe I just look at this as an educated guess. Is that a better way of thinking about it? Do you think, you know, cause like what's the way forward with this? I'm not going to stop checking this dashboard, but does this mean that I should check it less? I should take it with only so many grains of salt or that if I'm going to check it, I should make sure that I've got some extra coffee because I'm going to be spending 20 minutes with it, just making sure I've got my, my ducks in a row. Well, I think extra coffee is always a good solution to most oh, yeah. problems. Yeah, uh, I, forgot, I forgot about that. So I would say a little bit of extra coffee and then also finding some individuals, especially researchers, because there are a lot of researchers that are doing daily work to help the public interpret the data. So combining your interpretation of these dashboards with potentially a, a researcher that you feel comfortable with, a lot of them are on Twitter and on Facebook, that can help you interpret some of that data. Okay. so. It seems to me that in looking at these dashboards, maybe one way to put it is we're only looking at half the story. We're looking at the output, but we're not looking at the processor institutions that kind of created all this stuff as much. And so if we want to be responsible users of dashboards about public health information like this, then we have to have homework that leads up to it, which is to just better understand where the data came from, what the techniques are, or what current logic is going into sorting and presenting the data. Yeah, so I think what we almost need is another button or tab on each of these dashboards where they work with some science communication specialists to visualize, well, how does this number end up on a dashboard? And to help us contextualize that a little more. Until that tab appears, it seems like everybody's got to come to these dashboards with a running start with some some information and understanding because it's just not here on the dashboards right now, or at least in many cases, it's certainly not. 
yeah, we have to go find that fine print and then read it and interpret it, which is a lot of work. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I valued that publications like New York Times and Washington Post have kept the same graphic up since the very beginning of the pandemic, because it at least means that when you come back to it and you understand it, there's value in repeating the same thing or in just updating the same chart over and over again. This is back to where we start getting a dividend for a dashboard, right? The whole reason we put up the same charts in the same configuration in the same way and show it over and over and over again is not just so we can support a decision and you know make these comparisons, but also we keep some kind of consistency so that we don't have to bootstrap every single time we want to look at a chart. And so it feels like that homework is going to pay a dividend. So it's not like every time you check your web browser for this kinds of information, you're going to have to do a ton of work. But it does feel like you know we should be thinking about the dashboard having some kind of payoff where you have to invest a little bit more time in. I think I've been using these dashboards all wrong, I think is what I've come into a realization on. Yeah, so to, to wrap up, I would go back to... I think a lot of what we're talking about here is the context. So we have to do a little more work to understand the context of the final number. So we can really better understand what it means. So thanks for joining us for this conversation. We'll see you in the next one. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.